Hey guys, and welcome back to the Skullcast for episode 106. I am your host, as always, Walter, and joining me today are Azil. Hey. Griffith. Yo. And Grail. Hey, guys. We got a whole crew here today, and um, we're going to wrap up volume 22. I left you guys hanging with the final two episodes of that volume because it's real thick. Uh, It's real dense, and uh, we're going to finish it up today. So check that out in a little bit. I wanted to start by going over just a real quick thing on news. For those that have been following uh, the Berserk release schedule, you know, we were due uh, right today, actually, to record a new episode on the new Berserk episode, uh, 361. But it actually, um, it was scheduled to come out this past Friday. It didn't actually come out. We got a notice last week that it was going to be delayed by a month, and it's due out July 22nd. It's only notable because it's never happened before. And by say never happened before, I mean it's never been given a date in a young animal preview and then taken off the table and moved to the next month. That I've never seen that happen before, and I have not read anywhere that that has happened. If it's happened in the past, in the golden age perhaps, I, I didn't know about it. So uh, it hasn't happened in 20 years in any case. So uh, that was weird. It was a sad day. Yeah, it was just news. a little strange. Um <laughs> And from my perspective, I had already, you know, booked that podcast thing on my calendar. Who cares? We just moved it to volume 22 wrap up. It's no big <laughs> deal. But it was just kind of like, huh, I wonder if there is, because we're bored as shit and there's nothing else to talk about, I wonder if this means anything. Probably doesn't actually mean anything. But um, I'll tell you what it meant for me personally, whether it's like a, a wide effect on Berserk's publishing at large. You know, I keep hoping that Miura's, um, you know, intention to stabilize the production rate around Duranki, uh will happen. I really do. But shit like this ain't ain't great. You know, it ain't it ain't <laughs> climbing that ladder any quicker. So that's all I took away from it was is that things are clearly still a little bit rocky over there. If he has to change a publication date, which is an unprecedented step that I I don't think has ever happened before. So that's all it is to me. It's it's a little bit of a blip on our radar about what's happening at Maria studio and it's a delayed release. So that's about it. We soldier on. I agree with you. Yeah. You just okay. wait a little longer. We're used to waiting. Yeah. It's true. <laughs> yeah. A month is not a big deal, but yeah, see, I can do this standing on my head. I mean, this delay, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but it, but it is interesting. Yeah. And I don't care to speculate much. I'm only mentioning it cause you know, we're all in front of a microphone, but People had talked about, like, you know, does it mean that there's going to be a major change in this episode? Like, I think it could be so many things as minuscule as Mira never actually gave them the all clear for that being the date. That could also be a thing, you know, if they had just announced that. But uh, it could also be that, yeah, he, he had to pull the episode at the last minute to make an alteration and there wasn't enough time to resubmit it to get it in this past issue. Just so many things. So I don't know that we'll ever get an answer on that. So I don't have much of like an appetite for like intense speculation about it. That's where I landed on that. But anyway, this next section of the reread, volume 22, it's Snow and Flames parts one and two. It's a really special part of the series because it's a long flashback. It's a two-part flashback for Farnese and Serpico, characters that have been in the series at this point for about five years or so, four years, 97 or so to 2001, which is when this came out. But, you know, we didn't know a lot about them. We, we learned the most about Farnese uh, in the volume 18 little mini flashback we got from her and about her childhood. This takes that as the German kind of just runs with it and just goes real deep on both characters. 
What I think is special about it, though, is just how differently it's arranged. It's just action does not take the forefront here. It's all about the narration and, and the introspective paneling and shots of the characters. If there's an action that's happening, it's usually made minuscule on the page so that he can like really use every inch of the page for sharing about the, the, you know, the past story, which is obviously at the forefront of this two-parter. But uh, I say all that to say that it's a very dense episode and there's a lot to say on every page. Like mm. there's one page on part two where it introduces this heretical sect that's trying to change the way that, you know, money is distributed so that it's not all for the wealthy and it can be distributed to the, you know, the masses at large and it gets stamped out and labeled a heretical sect by the church. And that's in two panels. So it's a two little tiny little panels. And that's, that's an interesting wrinkle to the politics of the time that has never been covered before. But again, it, it kind of takes a little backseat to the overall section of the story. So, um, before we go super deep in it, I wanted to um, kind of start generally about Farnese and Serpico, because this is a good opportunity to do that about um, these are characters that have been uh, they're in the midst of a pivot from, you know, they're they were initially they were antagonists of guts, you know, kind of misguided antagonists. Mm. Uh, the episodes really these episodes are really, you know, all about them and learning more about them. So I wanted to answer the question at this point, like, who are Farnese and Serpico? So we've had episodes about them in the past focused on them. And I'll tell you, I listened to them. They were from 2013. We can do better. So like I wanted to do a little bit better of a framing of them. So they are members of Guts Party. And they started out, as I mentioned, as antagonists. They were standing mm-hmm. in the way between him and Casca. But ultimately... Something... So sorry, I'm interrupting you. Some things that bears mentioning is that... These two episodes that flashback is actually like it's what signals a transition from side characters to actual main characters in volume 23. So it's, you know, it, it does relate very strongly to the fact that move on from being antagonists and side characters to becoming part of the main crew in, in, in 23. I think that was a transitional though because in episodes that were in volume 18, both Serpico and Farnese have these somewhat what's the word, uh, sentimental episodes mm-hmm. where we're, we're seeing that they recognize, you know, problems with the way that the Holy See has run things and mm. inconsistencies in how they've chosen to dominate all beyond. So like they are seeing these things and we see them seeing these things, but they're still participants in something that is overall evil. Right. And at this point, you're right. They have separated themselves from that and they're headed towards guts with, you know, uh, good thoughts instead of bad thoughts. So yeah, mm. this is now now they are on the path to uh, becoming you know main characters of that story for sure. Um, the audience doesn't know it until this volume, but they're actually uh, step siblings. Well, we knew that they were nobles and they were part of the Holy Iron Chain Knights, but um, secretly uh, Serpico knows it, but uh, Farnese does not. But they're actually related through their father, uh, Federico Vendimian which is uh, the, the wealthiest and most influential family, or at least one of them uh, on the continent. Um, and whenever she was introduced, Farnese was the leader of the Holy Iron Chain Knights, which is kind of like an ornamental division of the Holy See. It's where all the rich nobles put their kids so that they can get that status and prestige without actually getting blood on their hands or you know hurt or injured. That didn't work out. It didn't really work out <laughs> as a result. Yeah, they got completely decimated. I think they're the only three surviving ones are Azan, Serpico, and Farnese. Yeah. Yeah. Which is part of what makes it difficult for Azan to separate from the group in 21 is he feels responsible for, you know, sending that message back to the Holy See 
and he takes the hit. Whereas Farnese and Serpico are like, yeah, well, peace. You deal with that old man. And he was also like the only actual veteran fighter in the group. So that's right. And, you know, it feels, you know, expected that he would take the blame, especially given his morals, you know, very, very strict as a knight. Yeah. When we first see Farnese, she is the leader of the Holy Iron Chain Knights, and she's on a mission following the Black Swordsman, who the Holy See thinks is tied to the prophecy of the Falcon of Darkness, which Farnese recites when we first see her just after the eclipse at the Red Lake. Uh, because they, they think that they've concluded this because of the recent signs that they've seen on their travels. Uh, they believe that Guts is the Falcon of Darkness, which is hilarious, uh, but because when Farnese finally gets her hands on Guts, she realizes that, you know, he's just a man uh, surviving in the midst of all the darkness around him. Uh, she, it's not the darkness that she was looking for. Um, and when Guts kidnaps her, she learns about that there are powers and uh, beings that are beyond her religion. You know, there's a world that's bigger than what she knew, and that terrifies her. But at the same time, it ties her to Guts. It makes her obsessed with learning from Guts or learning more about this you know, enigmatic man. And after the Tower of Conviction, she sees him as her prophet, you know, as her words for it. And the only one strong enough to stand up in the dark, alone against the darkness. So she renounces her title at the end of 21 and seeks him out, which brings us to 22, where they're searching for guts, but this time to join him. Uh, Notice that I didn't say much about Serpico throughout that whole time. Um, He is um, introduced as a kind of a cunning person cunning i would say mercurial because he is at the same time sometimes he strikes you as evil he opens his eyes a little bit right but at the same time he's mostly a good guy right so i um, think i think cunning is proper especially since he's got like that little thing with uh, foxes he's compared to a fox which is you know that's right naturally cunning yeah he comes across in the earlier episodes as darker than he truly is like Um, more crafty and shifty yeah it just there's some, there's some shots in volume 18 that he comes across as just like soulless. Um, a lot of times he puts that fox mask down, he walks away, and he just looks very intensely uh, hiding a dark past. And it's really not the case, actually. He's someone who's just yeah. he's just he's dispassionate, if anything. It's interesting how as as we see more of Serpico and Farnese, it seems like Mira's way of drawing Serpico softened mm-hmm. over time, where his face didn't have those sharp features anymore, and kind of soften to that expression that we know now. I think there's also uh, a perspective difference because in those volumes he was an adversary and now he's part of the team and you know that might be intentional or unconscious but the way he's depicted changed naturally along with that and I think it might be interesting to check out his duel against Guts in a Ritanis you know to see because I remember, you know, from memory, like those shots of him standing, you know, amongst the pillars. He looks pretty. He looks pretty bad in those, you know, sinister yeah. again. Yeah, yeah, he looks very sinister. So I think, you know, from the perspective of someone who's about to get killed by him, uh, probably looks like a bad guy. <laughs> I mean, yeah. and you know, it's kind of the same, you know, with guts. You know, it always reminds me of. Uh, when you see shots of him as a, like in whole black with that white eye, for example, when he comes and, uh, to see Erica, uh, after, you know, coming back from, uh, killing Roshinu and all that kind of stuff, looking for Casca, and that shot of him in the woods, uh, very scary. So it just depends on the perspective of who's seeing him. Yeah. Well, there's even some shots early on of him where he looks almost like 
a little bit like Foss in the face, strangely enough, like because of the way they've got similar eyes and he's looking mm. kind of sinister and, you know, mysterious. But I think part of it is the mystery because like when Jerome gets to know him a little bit, you kind of also realize, you know, he doesn't take this as seriously. He's sort of there. He's not he's not like a believer by any means. And you kind he's of along for the ride. Yeah, he's along for the ride. And he's got, you know, his own little dark uh, secret going on, which, it, you know, has nothing to do with uh, with faith. Mm hmm. These episodes actually go into that too. And I feel like he's just someone who has buried who he really is, you know, to be in service of Farnese better. And then the same thing is he, he cared after his mother in the same way. He, he kind of ignored his own you know, desires and needs and focused on who he was serving. Anyway, along the way, in, in terms of, you know, basically being put in this position where he has to protect Farnese from childhood on. He's developed, uh, you know, he's become quite a skilled protector of her, and he had to learn kind of on the job how to do that. So we saw in volume 16, when I use the word cunning, you know, he's the one that throws that twig at Gut's uh, wounded leg. It hits the arrow and causes Gut's to, you know, flinch just enough time for Farnese to get that little quote-unquote stab in, right? So, yeah, he's pretty skilled. He's no slouch. And he developed those really quick, you know, smart reflexes, you know, in the process of, of protecting Farnese, as we learn in this sequence of episodes. Has anyone else managed to defeat, like, in essence, you know, take down Guts and do it in such a way that, like, he makes mm-hmm. it look like someone else did it? Like, that's incredible. <laughs> like, the yeah. degree of difficulty, you, you know, I know Guts is, like, almost collapsing anyway. Yeah. You know, but uh, it's still ridiculously... Uh, a pretty big feather in his cap in my book. To be fair, Gus uh, was just, you know, down from fighting Roshinu, and then he had to first get through Azan. Yeah, yeah, he's uh, he's almost ready to black out just on his feet. Yeah. But I mean, it's just the, the level of skill to hit him with that stick right yeah. in the right spot to, you know, make him fall the right way. Like, he could have still brought his sword down on, like, Farnese, <laughs> like, if he had hit him wrong, I guess. At the same time, even if you if you exclude that, you know, those conditions, you know, he faced Guts, you know, one-on-one that he, you know, on the, the mountain, the cliffside. Of course, he controlled the conditions of that battle as well. But even then, Guts recognized him as a threat. Yeah, so. yeah. The, you know, he – well, he's also the one who set up those conditions, you know. So of course. He, uh, you know, he gets credit for that as well. Yeah. Yeah, Musashi would say that that's all part of it, you know. Yeah. So. <laughs> What else, what else was I going to say? Oh, the, about Guts and Serpico's relationship. So through at this point, you know, well before, you know, where we are in the series right now, you know, he sees Guts as basically a thorn in Farnese's side. He thinks at this point he hopes to be able to like stifle these thoughts in Farnese's head because Guts has caused her to completely reel out of the trajectory that she was in. Uh, so it's moved her beyond safety you know, out into the wilderness now. She's forsook her title and her position to go on this quest that he doesn't, Serpico himself doesn't believe in. And so that's where we start out in volume 22, where he's apprehensive about this mission that they're on. Uh, but he's following anyway, because he's there to protect her and serve her. Uh, before we get started completely, I did want to read uh, something that Miura had answered uh, in the guidebook interview. I just wanted to read two little sections about he directly addresses the formation of Serpico and Farnese, which I thought was interesting. And I just wanted to capture it real quick. So the interviewer asks, um, how did you go about creating Farnese? Miura's answer is, I imagined her as the second heroine after Casca, but I had a little trouble because I simply crammed my own tastes into Casca to create her character. 
She's loaded with what I consider ideal, a warrior woman, dark brown, strong, but with a womanly side. But when it came time to make a new heroine, I couldn't use the same method as with Casca. So I thought I may as well make a heroine for whom female readers could sympathize. Uh, Maury, uh, it's his friend from uh, high school, uh, is popular with girls. So I asked for his opinion. Uh, <laughs> the concept was a female office worker who's been in society for a year or two may or may not be accustomed to her job yet and is ill at ease in a masculine society. And he laughs. So she's doing her best with a band of knights in a masculine society, but she's unsociable because she can't fit in with those around her. And her frustration is moving in a sexual direction. Although half of it includes my own delusions. In the face of Mosgus's intense impact, such an ungrounded woman is sure to get hung up on a new religion. In other words, she's an office lady caught up in a dangerous new religion. That's Farnese. And he laughs. Um, I don't think that's like an all-inclusive definition of who Farnese is. Like, I have a lot more things to say about her. I'll never see her the same way again. Office yeah, lady uh, is not a word I would have used to describe her before. <laughs> I, I, Boy, the, you know, it's, man, a, it's but... a good thing Mira's not on Twitter. I mean, you know, gee, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know that this is fine now. But it, that's interesting, though. I mean, I definitely, I actually, I totally see the parallel, like, where he's coming from there. I mean, I didn't see it, like... Before, that's not how I would have thought of her, but it, it makes sense to come from that place in her creation. She's quick to assert her authority. So that's, that's important to her, right? Particularly when she's dealing with the guts in them at the time. It's only in 17. When I think of an office you know, worker, and I've been an office worker myself, is like I think of them as more humble, though. The problem is she also comes from this. You know, I feel like her family background mm-hmm. is important to who she is. But then again, you know, that, that gets developed more later. <laughs> later. Young and in management. That would be like that. Yeah, there you go. That kind of makes sense. I think like when when he says office lady, you have to consider the context of Japanese society where, you know, an office lady's opposite of what they call a salary man, you know, which is these droves of people all dressed the same. Yeah. Who get to work and just like walk all day long. That night they go and drink with their, uh, you know, uh, co-workers and get them and collapse. And it's a very, I mean, in Japan, it's a very, it can be a very tough uh, life because you're just one small guy amongst a huge structure. And I know for women, it's uh, in Japan, it's a very, it can be a very difficult environment. So I think that might be his perspective, you know, uh, to have a, a woman who's struggling uh, amongst men in an environment that's unfamiliar to her, who has to prove herself, but who's not necessarily in foreign this specific case, uh, you know, in a place there because, you know, it's that... Uh, religious thing so yeah i, I think there's that, that component of uh, japanese culture and society to take into account here yeah i agree yeah i mean also i think the translation of office worker it might actually have other you know just translation no options. i mean he, no? he he did say specifically office lady and he had uh, said so in another interview in the past but uh, like i said it's like it's a specific term in Japan to, you know, uh, describe uh, women who work in like these, you know, giant corporations. Mm-hmm. Same with salary men. You know, uh, J- Japanese people, they love to uh, use a strange English loan words. So like salary man is, you know, like it doesn't mean anything. Yeah, it's a guy <laughs> who gets a salary, sure. And office lady is the same thing for women. So it's a big, like the stands of manga in Japan that, that are about office ladies, you know, the life of a woman in the office, that kind of stuff. I mean, you got, uh, Grell, you must close that one, the one with the uh, fox, you know. That, Agretsuko. Yeah, exactly. So that, that's like, that's a story about an office lady. 
where she's got all these insane, stupid people in a workplace and she's struggling there. And so to get off some steam of work, she, she's into heavy metal. So, uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's very common in Japan. Every time you say salary man, I'm just hearing salary man because of the Tim Eric sketch. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm just thinking of, of Paul Rudd at his computer. Do you have any new uh, dancers for me? <laughs> <laughs> that was great. I've developed something new for you, Paul. <laughs> um, it's an emergency. The next... <laughs> I'm busy. Yeah. Um, the next thing in the interview is about Serpico. Uh, how about Serpico, the interviewer asks. And Mira says, Serpico is those female readers' dream. I don't know about this, you guys. <laughs> that, that's so funny. That's so funny. Okay, I was going to move on, but I have to say, <laughs> it doesn't start out well for I just, I, just for poor Mira's relationships that he has to ask a man who's popular with women about women. It's like, oh, I feel like I feel for him. <laughs> like, it's like, oh, that sounds lonely. He's trying to keep his bases covered. You got to respect it. <laughs> My intuition was that he's the kind of man that women would want to have around. To be frank, he's Andre from The Rose of Versailles. Uh, for a woman exhausted by society, he sees to her needs and considers her before all else. I thought this might be a woman's everlasting dream. To take it further, I think there are three dream men that a woman has. This is getting a little weird. He's defining these roles. Here we go. Let's hear it. I don't know that you can do it. Okay. Um, someone like Serpico, who sticks close by a prince on a lofty peak for whom she longs, and someone wealthy and down-to-earth who will come and woo her. I recently saw the stage production of Ona Kaizoku Blanca. Bianca? Bianca. Bianca. Uh, based on Glass Mask by Suzui Miyuchi. In it, those three types of men show up around the heroine, and I realized, oh, the same things happened in coincidence in Berserk. Farnese has Serpico close by, Guts to long for, and Roderick the rich guy. That's all three present and accounted for. Wow. Yeah. Anyway, that's his. He doesn't really go into depth about his creation about Serpico. To me, there's more to say about Serpico than like a trope about him being. I don't know. I that's kind of perfect. <laughs> he's he's completely <laughs> subservient to uh, to Farnese's character. Mm-hmm. But I mean, obviously, there's more to him than that. But that's sort of it. Would make sense that that's sort of uh, how he's conceived. The basis. Yeah. Yeah, he, he, like, he does come across, even when the story begins, you know, he's clearly, like, subservient and, uh, acting as her, I wouldn't say servant, but yeah, that's pretty much it. And so it's, what I think, what I find interesting from that mirror interview, but of course that, we already knew from others, uh, is that Mira reads a lot of, uh, Shoujo manga, you know, uh, manga that's aimed at women. And, uh, he, he has, you know, gone on at length about how Griffith and Gus relationship, for example, you know, you know, was partly inspired by, by that kind of, you know, story. I find it interesting that he was inspired to create these characters, uh, from, you know, stuff like Glass Mask. Glass Mask is a very, very popular, uh, manga in Japan about uh, theater. Uh, it's been going on for years. It's like, I don't know, it must be at volume, uh, 50 by now, but it's, it's, you know, had huge breaks. So nothing new to Berserk fans, but yeah, it's, it's very popular for, for women. Yeah. I'd never heard of it before. And I saw it referenced in that, that interview. Pula knows it well. Sure. Never heard of it, but yeah. going to check it out now. <laughs> you know, with stuff like Rose of Versailles, there's also Orpheus Nomado, which is about the Russian revolution. It's, I mean, to me personally, this kind of stuff is unbearable, but uh, believe me, 
women like this stuff. <laughs> I mean, chicks love it, dude. Yeah, I mean, some 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 women do do love it. I can, I can attest to that. But uh, well, I mean, it's definitely a very distinct style. But it is cool that obviously, like the this tough seinen manga draws so much from shoujo that you know in the past ten years, I definitely learned more about. So that's kind of cool. Yeah, I mean, Mura, it's it's funny because you, you would expect, like, a guy who does Sinan, you know, uh, you would expect him to just care about, I don't know, just, you know, fighting manga. Obviously, yeah. Mura's, lo- you know, he's, he loves fighting. He loves, uh, you know, uh, typical male manga, that kind of stuff. But he's very well read, if you can say so, in that he knows, you know, he reads a lot of ma- manga from a lot of, uh, different genres, and uh, I think that show that shows in Berserk, you know, and I think that also helps explain why it's so complex and uh, you know why why it's so how to say well rounded in a way. Yeah, and he shows a lot of women's points of view, which I think is part of why Berserk is very popular with women, and and uh, not just because. He designed Serpico to look handsome <laughs> or, or whatever. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, honestly, when you look at it, Gus, you know, it's true that these, you know, you look at the character of Gus, he does uh, embody a certain type of guy. You know, obviously, he's a hero. He's brave. He's very loyal and stuff. And so, you know, I, I can see uh, the allure of trying to have different archetypes. For sure. I think it's also part that he knew that he was building a team at this point, and he wanted to probably make sure that that team each reflected a different facet of character so that it's not just overlapping strong guys, you know? So It's not like to- Fist of the North Star where everybody <laughs> is like, big muscle man, you know? You can tell who's different by their, like, you know, shoulder gear. It looks a little Yeah. <laughs> I do. Well, you know, that being said, it's funny – when you look at Serpico's development, he's been kind of left by the wayside, you know, compared to Farnese especially. So it's kind of interesting that he was conceived as a, you know, as what a woman would want, let's say, in this case, as what Farnese would like by her side, which is a... A blank slate, basically. Or a, yeah. a servant. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. I mean, he, he's a servant. And he's a, it's true he's very selfless and he's been very devoted to her, but it's also true that... You know, that has resulted in a lack of growth on his part. And it's actually reflected, like, when he gets uh, his gear uh, from Flora, he reflects on the fact, you know, he has trouble to uh, accept these, you know, wind elementals because he feels very grounded, which is, in a way, a reference to to these two episodes, which we might get on later on. So I, I think, you know, it's been addressed in the past, and it's yet to actually bear its fruit that he must grow as a character. Yeah, I, I feel like I actually have more understanding for the fact that he has been such a blank slate for so long, because, like, I hadn't quite realized or thought about in these two episodes how he really has basically – what's the word, repress anything that he might want for himself so that he can be a better servant. And I also, I wonder if that actually translates to his character design, his always closed eyes, his very blank features most of the time. Like he doesn't have much, he's not an expressive person, you know, or rarely expressive. And I wonder if that's just part of, you know, who he is or if it's kind of, you know, emblematic of his character. I can definitely tell you what Murazansa would be. He would say, 
Well, characters who keep their eye closed and open them when they get serious are pretty cool, so I wanted to have one of them. He would, <laughs> he that's would, just what it comes down to. He would tell you that, and it's true. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's true. It's like, oh, shit. He's opened his eyes. It means yeah, this is serious He now. means business. He even did that with Guts. He gave them the, the, you know, the berserk eye, the little Z eye, whenever it's really serious. Yeah. yeah. So, but yeah, I, I do think it's also like it's part of who he is. He's not a very emotional guy. He's very cold. He's very calculative. That also shows in his, you know, style of battle. Like you said earlier, you know, the whole tactician aspect where he'll try to uh, make sure he wins before the battle has even begun, even though we've got that does not work. So, uh, yeah, I, I think, and I think, you know, he's got to actually. You know, speaking about it makes me excited. I, I wonder how will he go, you know? Obviously, he can't... I mean, he's never going to be a, a wild and, you know, very adaptive fighter like Guts is. But I, I'm curious to see how he develops, not just in his fighting style, but, yeah, in, in the way he relates to others and maybe expressing his own desires. And I feel like, you know, right now we're in a film... Every character is going to have to make a decision. What do they do? Do they go back to the continent? Do they go on with the mission? And I hope that Serpico will do more than just say, oh, well, I'll just might as well just follow the others. I, I hope he's going to, you know, take his fate into his own hands. Yeah, I, th- yeah. I think he'll be forced to find his own footing because I imagine Farnese is going to start getting the specialized training now. I wonder if that might be the moment where, you know, he doesn't need to watch over her anymore, A, and B, she's just, you know, distanced from him now. That would be a nice way to say, I better find what I want to do with my life, you know, apart from this. Because this is clearly, I don't, she doesn't need such a supportive role anymore. Well, I feel like she's been there or they've been there for a while. Like yeah, he's just sort true. of been meandering and, you know, she like she because forget being able to sort of literally physically protect herself. She's sort of emotionally been like independent. I'm trying to think back. I mean, when. It was sort of official. I mean, I guess it really that was really twenty five. Yeah, that was really the crux, I think, of his uh, his duel with guts. I mean, you know, obviously yeah. it was about you know always oh, protecting her because if they stay with him, eventually they're going to die. All roads are going to lead there. But I mean, the other part of it was he took her away from him. You know, so yeah, it's it'll be interesting to see where that goes and if Serpico can grow in some way or what would. What would be next for him? Like, what would he grow to do? I mean, he's already a good fighter. He's already, you know, useful and valuable. But what would he find that's sort of his own thing? Would it be, you know, another relationship, you know, that's a little more fulfilling that maybe takes him more into consideration? Because I don't know, even as much as Farnese has grown, I don't feel like she really considers him. I do think, I'm trying to think, did she, I think she said something about their relationship once and how he needs to kind of, you know, find his oh, own. It's identity. covered in it's covered in the episodes that we're going to talk yeah. about. But kind of after the after the big fire, like mm-hmm. that that kind of petered out. I guess there was a moment where it could have been different. I think, and it's just not. So, so I feel like that's a good enough time to just transition straight into the episode because it's kind of touched on here. Um, these this two part episode, I'll say the writing here is top notch. Uh, Mira takes his time with these characters. There are so many standout lines to me in this. It's dense, too. It's really dense. In The way the narration pulls you through each scene, the way it jumps around in time a bit, it honestly feels more cinematic to me than most episodes. Like, it really does feel and look like, 
he's really spending his time to really get a sense of place for each scene uh, more than he normally does. Normally, it's you know, sort of linear storytelling. You got point A going to point B. Here, it's kind of all over the place. Um, anyway, I, I really have a lot of respect for this episode. At the same time, it's really rich. It's almost too rich a sampling of their childhood, such that there's so much happening. It's hard to really like focus in on you know the takeaways from these two. But well, you- I feel like he. Go ahead, ahead, Griff. It's like the this is like their golden age flashback, but in two episodes. So it's it's crazy. (laughs) Yeah, it does feel like a whole different, almost like a different manga and story. But I mean, it's not. But I mean, to me, of of all the sort of little side stories or flashbacks, this one sticks out the most to me. It's the length as well, but also as you mentioned, like even the the length itself, it's super compressed. Yeah, it's to two full episodes. So yeah. But it feels perfect. It doesn't feel like rushed or anything either. That's what's Not at all, really no. impressive about it. Yeah. It, it almost makes me wonder when he was able to produce it because there wasn't much of a gap in releases at this point in the series. He was just cranking it out. I mean, right in the middle of the ending conviction and starting Millennium Falcon, he just spit this back out. Anyway, um, we start the first section of this, of this flashback in snow, and there's a campfire as well. So thematically appropriate to the name Snow and Flame, there's a campfire and it's snowing. Um, Farnese and Serpico are on the road trying to find guts. Uh, and what's notable about this scene here is that it's the first time for them kind of roughing it like this because, you know, they are pampered nobles having been raised in the crook of the arm of the Vandemian family most of their lives. So this is a real departure for them. Uh, you know, Farnese had her own little special tent when they were roughing <laughs> it with the Holy Iron Chain Knights and how they're just trying to find shelter in this, you know, burned out house is the best they can do. So Farnese is complaining about it being cold and she's hungry. And Serpico takes this moment to kind of test her dedication to this mission of hers, you know, asking if it's time to give up and return home. And she, uh, but she's determined, says that she doesn't even want to, you know, besides it gives her an excuse not to have to return to that mansion. Um, Farnese twice in this part of the episode asks um, Serpico to come closer to the fire. And she actually kind of like calls him, you know, the one who supplies my food. She won't have the one that supplies my food collapsing, kind of regarding him as merely a tool and not a person, which is kind of funny. But both times he kind of, you know, ignores her. And at one point just turns and turns fully away from her saying that he has to guard, be on the lookout for any cushions or such that might show up. But there's clearly this gulf between them in this scene. And I like even that Mira frames it in that way so that there's a distance between them, despite the fact of them being companions that, you know, Serpico is not willing to cross. Mm -hmm. So there's some kind of buffer between them that we don't know much about yet. He also doesn't like to stare at the fire because of his past, obviously. Oh, yeah. That's right. And that's why he turns away. He has a little, oh, tiny yeah. little good. bubble. Yeah. Goes, Ugh. yeah. The fire kind of repels him, so he turns away from I it. I think it's also worth mentioning that while Farnese says di- dismissively that she won't have her first source, uh, you know, collapsing, she actually cares about him getting cold. You know, it's not just, uh, she's not just ordering a servant. It's because she also wants him to be, you know, by the fire and be warm. Yeah, and that, that's kind of her way of expressing it. She's not a very and she has not learned to be an endearing person yet. You know, that kind of comes later with her mm. personality development. Yeah. So much of their conversations focus around utility here. Yeah, she's he and her are both kind of had stilted uh, upbringings because of where they grew up and who they grew up around. So we see that in the way they interact with others as well. So the the cold and the hunger uh, bring forth memories of Serpico about basically the day that they first met. 
So we are shown, you know, Serpico as a boy uh, being beaten up in the in the streets for for his food. So there's these, you know, uh, poor children, and he is among the poor children, you know, desperate for food, and they beat him up to get his food. Uh, but you know, the the head, you know, bully kind of turns around in a second and then gets a rock in the face. So Serpico he brutally attacks this kid, you know, to get his food back, and we see this very determined look on his face as he's holding the bloody rock. So what I like about this little sequence is that uh, it's paired with our introduction to the holy city, where the architecture itself is said to you know be reaching out for God, but you know, the people with low birth, it's the same old story. You know, there's a bloody battle in the streets for food, so there's already this like parallel that we're pretty familiar with in Berserk, that there is a high and a low uh, in this world. Serpico's mother, she's clearly ill because of the way that she's she's very frail and thin and her bones are very are protruding but more important than just that it's really like life has moved on around her and and she has been clinging to this hope of one day being rejoined with this noble that you know she used to work in his house uh, and ultimately that encounter gave birth to Serpico for, as a result so we learn early on that he is the son of an aristocrat or a noble excuse me uh, but he's a bastard child, so probably won't be recognized. What else? The boys from earlier uh, bring uh, siblings, and they they beat Serpico up to you know they say beat him to half half to death. But in all honesty, he probably would have died at that moment had Farnese not stopped her carriage or seen him in a distance and stopped her carriage. She was on the way to church when she sees him uh, to picks up this lost last boy to nurse him back to health. Her- uh, quick, quick detail here. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, aside from the silly rabbit line that we talked about, mm-hmm. which is really goofy, um, in the Dark Horse translation, it's another translation question. The servant behind Farnese asks, "What is it, lady? We will be late for our holy communion." And I am not sure what they mean by communion here, because we don't know a whole lot about of the religion in the Berserk world. Well, I think it's because of it, we know Holy See. I've always assumed it to be a pretty good parallel to Catholicism in general. Because there's, yeah. there's a pontiff, there's the Holy See. I just assume they really mean straight up communion, like you know, Catholicism has communion. Right? No, Are they Holism. eating little little hawk, like falcon shaped wafers, or what's going no, on? That's a good question. <laughs> it would probably be uh, just mass. I think. I think communion is a clumsy. I mean, I would have to check the actual translation, but you know, like uh, in Catholicism, when you do your communion, it's a it's a specific you know uh, time in uh, the life of uh, someone who believes. Uh, whereas I think here, that might just mean you know they're going to mass basically. Okay, that was my question because communion to me is a very specific act. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, it is. Uh, it's, it's very specific. It marks like a step in your you know path to whatever. And uh, I, I'm not quite sure that's what they mean here uh, because you know communion can also mean uh, well. I mean, it's hard to describe now that I think of it. Interchange, sharing thoughts or whatever. You know, co- communicating with God. So I think that right. might actually be the meaning here. And the thing is. Uh, Mura, he tends to not use words that directly associate with, uh, you know, existing faith. So, for example, he never uses the word church. He will use temple. You know, he says he's a holy see as temples, not, you know, churches in the way you would call a Catholic church. So I think here they call it, uh, you know, holy communion in the sense that you are, uh, you know, uh, communicating with God. 
but uh, it probably does not refer specifically to the actual uh, act of, you know, a communion in the Catholic faith. All right. That was it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I wanted to pause on that page anyway. So because their character design is really impressive, just the, the costume on Farnese as a child. I just love the, the fur tails on her hat and all the different ruffles on her uh, outfit. It just you spent some time making her stand out as a pure noble uh, for just from the look at her. And he says he knew, knew her at a glance that it was a noble, someone who's a, a word that's cursed to me because of Serpico's, you know, the, his upbringing. Uh, he comments on her rabbit saying it looks weird and she stomps him on the head for it. Um, but she, anyway, Farnese stops their whole journey and says, we're, we're turning back around and going back to the mansion because uh, she's going to nurse him back to health. This encounter with Farnese, you know, ensures that he has employment at the mansion. Uh, and he doesn't know the significance of the family yet, but readers are told it's not just any noble family. It's an extremely wealthy and influential family. I wanted to pause for a moment here to talk about why you guys think Farnese stopped. Because Serpico reflects on it later in this episode. And I think we have an answer, but I wanted to hear what you guys thought about. You know, someone who is very selfish and self-centered, like, why does she bother to stop and save this boy in the middle of the street? She she was a, a bit of a little pest as a, you know, uh, because of her bringing, but I, I don't think she was like a bad person at heart. So I do think she cares that he was actually dying in the street. Well, I don't know. She, I, she, I like the, you know, like insolent whelp and steps on his head. Immediately stomping on his head as he's dying, yeah. I don't know. I think part of it, I mean, I could, I can see that. I think, yeah, she is actually decent at heart. I think there's a middle ground here where it's like she is helping him, but she's also, it's almost like she's taking in like a puppy or a hurt pet or something rather than like, yeah. it's not like she's, you know, showing this great compassion for a human being. You know, at this point, I don't think she's grown to that level yet, but it's more like, you know, this she's going to claim this boy in the street for her own. And, you know, she, you know, insists on nursing him back to health, even though she's not very good at it. Yeah, she also wants companionship. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Yeah, like, she wants something just for her. Yes. You know, I think she's I think she's lonely. I think she does want a companion. But like her understanding of that concept is through the lens of like ownership. Like she says, like, I'm the one that saved your life. So you belong to me now. So like yeah. for her, this is like doing him a favor, you know. Well, yeah, it's but it's also it's opportunistic is I guess the what I'm also trying to say. It's like she's almost preying on something weak that she sees in the street rather than, you know necessarily coming to genuinely uh help but i mean i think yeah i think it's a combination of things to what all you guys are saying it is like an opportunistic moment where she's saying i get to have my own personal little person to to, to <laughs> make him do whatever i want but at the same time i'm kind of looking at this scene in the lens of seeing who farnese is now and i think that this might have been her like that nurturing part of her personality that we oh, yeah. see a lot more of now kind of almost trying to come out in <laughs> well, a weird way I where mean, she, where she, yeah. That's not, that's not bad. That's not bad. That, that can also be the way she has to filter that through basically, you know, like the opportunistic part, the taking him in like a pet or a person or someone that right. she owns. It's like, that's the, exactly. Cause that's the world she's been raised in yeah. up until this point. That could also be part of the cover for, you know, instead of her just being, acting super compassionately sort of like you know out of my way i'm taking this boy she's even inconveniencing yeah. everybody as she does it you know it's it's just yeah. part of how she has to operate yeah she's thrown her her noble weight around here grabbing this kid yeah 
the employment thing comes up when he goes back to his mom and tells her what happened, basically. This is kind of a, a, a hallmark of the way this episode goes. It was we get a combination of dialogue and narration. So you get introspection from the narrator overlaid with actual dialogue. So it's where his mom's giving him advice. This is your one chance to climb the ladder of nobility. But at the same time, you know, he feels a little weird about the circumstance of it. Uh, we see a little shot of him outside the gates of Van Dimmigan. I just wanted to point out that it's really cool that the metalwork and the gate, he actually has the four-leaf clover at the top, yeah. which is Farnese's, mm. you know, family uh, crest, the four-leaf clover, which um, I guess, <laughs> why a clover? I guess maybe it's like the Van Dimmians are so rich, it must be luck. They're just so lucky. They're sitting on a big pot of gold. Yeah, yeah. The, the pot of gold <laughs> at the end of the rainbow. So they've got lucky charms and tricks references in this manga. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah, he's just so lucky, you know. Uh, it, but, yeah, I don't know. It also made me think four, you know, Van Dimmian has four legitimate heirs. But it's not like he could have planned his family crest around the number of kids he had. That's just stupid. So it's just a stray thought. Probably, yeah, like we said, associated with luck and uh, mm-hmm. finance. I don't know. Yeah, I think the luck thing is just kind of like hilariously ignorant because he's a manipulator. He has designed the world so that he benefits, and he's not luck. It's you know yeah. by design. That's just well, maybe he's like a Scrooge McDuck. You know, he got his first you know coin, and that's the ones that brought everything else to him. If he loses it, maybe. he loses fortune. I can see him swimming in a pot of gold. I would actually like to see that. I wish we had a little shot of that in this. Um, we see these really funny vignettes of Serpico and Farnese in these various circumstances where, like, Serpico's in the water and she's either poking him with a stick or using a stick to pull him out of the water. Looks like, oh, her rabbit fell in the water and she's <laughs> helping get it out, I guess. He's no, she it threw it in there. <laughs> I, think, uh, I think she's poking him, but not necessarily helping, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. She's Holding him under. Prod- I actually some- had this in my notes as uh, Farnese equals Mr. Burns and Serpico <laughs> equals Mr. Smithers. That's actually a great <laughs> analogy, honestly. It's, it's just perfect. Oh, you know, I mean, she, really she's good. even unleashing the dogs on him, she's a- <laughs> which is, you know. I think that might have been it. Unleash the hound. Yeah, release yeah. the hound. Release the hounds. So this, these are these are these are played as comical, but like reading between the lines, you, you can kind of see how he's been training his his mind and his body to you know to protect her by enduring her tortures. He's had to become really quick thinking and quick witted to to get to survive these various encounters. You know, I also like Jose commands that basically he's the only one who can tolerate it because everybody else just fled because she's just unbearable. Yeah, there. Everyone's. He comments on it directly. You know, everyone in the mansion tread fearfully around her. This little tyrant, because she she becomes so isolated from everyone because no one wants to deal with her because she's you know erratic and you know you don't want to get in. A servant doesn't want to get the displeasure of you know the master of the house if he offended this loser daughter. So they just keep their distance when they can, and it leaves her all alone in this massive mansion. Her parents have left her alone, and they've buried her in these toys and trinkets that are, you know, emblems of what they hope to be their love. But really, as we learn, it's really just trinkets. Serpico thinks about how it kind of reminds him of his his mother, you know, who is also alone. And also, also is a parallel. He is also serving in this capacity. Um, He calls it in this huge prison. And we have this great, you know, silhouette shot of them looking at the holy city on the horizon as the sun sets. He tells her you'll catch cold, so he brings her a blanket, and we see in the next panel that he she just tossed him from the balcony, apparently, <laughs> while grabbing the blanket, saying thanks. 
But he also says that he, he kind of comments on the nature of why they ended up joining together. And I want, he says, I wonder if we both sense the same scent on, on each other. And that's why we joined together like this. There's a stormy night and uh, a limb breaks through the window. And we have this little episode that shows how full of fear that she, she lives in. She, she wants Serpico to stay with her through the night. Whenever the branch breaks through, she runs out into the storm itself. And she starts dancing out there. And we have this look of her eyes just like gone, basically. Uh, she says it's a storm. You just need to become a storm yourself. I feel like – and she starts breaking the statues, uh, these, these busts that are out there. I wanted to ask what you guys think. Like what's happening here? It seems clear to me that her situation has been weighing on her very much. And the storm is kind of, and you know, she's, she's very scared of that. You know, it's what the previous pages say, you know, that huge mansion where while there are many servants, she barely sees anyone in the day. So it's like she's alone. It's this giant labyrinth with, you know, statues and stuff. And that storm, I think at that point, just, yeah, sends her a bit over the edge, you know. And when you look at uh, her face, as she says, it's a storm, you gotta become the storm. It's kind of, you know, she was scared, then she ran out and decided to, how to say, throw herself in what elicited, elicited fear from her in order to alleviate it. And I think that relates to what she does with fire later on. She's afraid of it, you know, and she uh, ends up taking comfort in it. So it's kind of, I think it's a way to, for her to cope uh, with her mental distress. Yeah. And uh, I saw this scene as it, it kind of reminded me of like Gothic literature or Gothic films and that a character kind of loses their marbles and, and kind of goes over the deep end and indulges in this kind of extreme emotion. It reminds me of like the classic trope of the crazy Gothic woman who, loses her mind and like becomes hysterical. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It made me think about where she ends up in the Holy See and she just takes such pleasure in her devotion to the religion or really the, the religious, the things they did in the religious order under the guise of religion, really. Like that was her path forward in this world of darkness because that, that to her was like, it gave her, it gave her a role. It gave her adulation from adults. It gave her a, a reason to exist and like structure. Exactly. And the same thing here where she's embracing it. She's taking, She's seizing control from a chaotic world by basically becoming part of the storm itself. So that, I don't know, that's, that can, to me, that alludes to her, her Holy Sea, her Holy Iron Chain Knights, you know, whole episode of her life. Right. Everything we're seeing her do over the course of these two episodes is her kind of trying to develop currency for social interaction, I feel yeah, like. Yeah, that's mm. good. That's what she wants. <laughs> we transition to another section where... Farnese has taken Serpico, you know, deep into the forest where there's this little tree with a the falcon uh, symbol, uh, you know, placed within this little, you know, nook of the tree. And there's small bones of animals around. Yeah, I don't know about the social currency of this part. This is this is anti-social <laughs> currency she's uh, building yeah. here. I'll tell you what this is, her burning these animals and eventually burning her rabbit. I feel like it's the equivalent of her cutting herself, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, self-flagellation, which we she eventually does, eventually just do straight up self-flagellation. I I feel like you know, and uh, this is obviously like there's a huge relation with the church, uh, the Holy See. Uh, in this, you know, she got to start burning these animals because she was 
seeing from her window people burning humans alive. Like, can you imagine the the trauma of that uh, as a young child to watch from your window and see people getting burned alive? That's that's first. That's, Absolutely. I mean, that's insane. You know, that's like trauma that you carry with you for life. And so she reproduces that. Mm-hmm. Uh, in that little thing, and I think it's again, you know, part of part of her, uh, you know, uh, mental troubles. She's playing church. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and at the same time, she's also like she's destroying her possessions uh, in a way that I feel like she's also, yeah, self-flagellating, hurting herself. Which uh, Serpico also immediately sort of recognizes the uh, the danger here. The as you can see on the next page is nervous face and him thinking about what he heard about a uh, another servant. Yeah, because yeah, he's it's a, a red flag. Yeah. <laughs> he's in range of her torch as well, just as <laughs> yeah. Guts would say. <laughs> yeah, I think she's expressing like a learned value from what she saw at the Inquisition when she was a child. Like to her, it's what you do with bad things. You burn them away. But I also think it might be her responding to the disposable nature of like, the world that she lives in. This rich girl's life where her parents just kind of drop her off in this mansion. Right. She gets bored and throws it away or burns it and she just gets a new one. Yep. But I'm sorry, can I just say that I struggled with this particular page in a, for a really long time with, with Farnese, even though I'm a huge Farnese fan. Because you hear in the news people talking about, like, oh, serial killer did such and such to animals yeah. when they were growing up. Mm-hmm. And that always seemed really, like, disturbing to me. Like, how could Farnese be somebody like this and then turn into somebody who's taking care of Casca? But then when you factor in what you were saying, as about how she grew up seeing people burned alive from her window as a child and then growing up and being like the only way you can be considered good is if you burn all the heretics it's starts to make a lot more sense and i think that you can reconcile that part of farnese a a lot more easily than if it were like a modern character yeah and uh, also like like you know we said earlier i do things as a component of hurting herself, you know, when she feels like she hasn't been good. And I think that's really well exemplified perfectly in when she goes to see her father. And of course, he doesn't have time. And he comments on the fact that her doll is uh, filthy. And then she immediately goes and burns it. And, And she's sad, you know, she's not, she's not happy to do it. But it's like that's how she copes with the you know bad things that happen to her she burns them and you know i mean all, all this stuff should be you know taken uh in the context of what we see uh, beforehand in volume 21 you know that whole sh- you know image of the crumbling tower uh her face something that she had tried to take refuge in her vision of the world, that twisted vision that she sought to uh, use to reassure herself and have control of the world, all that comes coming down. And this, to me, is a uh, yeah. It's it shows us how she built up that you know uh, how to say structure around her to try to protect her mind. Yeah, you mentioned that we see Federico Vandemian here. What I, I think is interesting about the portrayal of him is it's never his full face usually with his back turned or his face askew. And I kind of feel like that's a design decision to make it so that he's not even really a presence here, or rather he is just a presence. He's not a person or, you know, really in this, in this section of her life. Yeah. Uh, you know, to, to stick a bit on the rabbit thing, I think w- when you look at uh, Van Diemen, you know, it's a really 
like terrible indictment of him as a father that he doesn't even remember that yep. he bought the doll. He doesn't understand that he's precious to her because he's the one who bought it for her. And she's just, I can buy you as many as you want. Just throw, throw it out. It's just, I mean, as a father yourself, you must understand how wrong that is. Yeah, I actually had written down. Actually, it's, it's later, but it's like the best dad ever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> later in this episode, he comments to Serpico, like, you're doing such a great job. I just wonder what's wrong with her. I'm at a loss, he says. It's like, really? I wonder what could possibly be wrong with your daughter that you basically have live all in this mansion. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I mean, he, he doesn't beat Gambino as a shitty father of words, but he's <laughs> no, close. Well, he's close. Yeah. Yeah, about this this rabbit thing. You know, we've talked about it a couple of times now. And yeah, but basically the, the essence is Federico sees her carrying around this rabbit, which she's had this whole entire episode so far, even previously had been years, I'm assuming, at this point. And uh, he's like, oh, what's this old thing? Throw it out. And it was precious to her because she had begged her father to get it years ago and he bought it for her. So it was like a, a tether between Farnese and her father. This is like a, a, a tender memento. But for him, he doesn't recognize it as that. He just sees it as filthy. I actually wonder for him if it's a status thing. Like, I can't have a Van Dimian, a member of the Van Dimian family, carrying around this ratty old toy. You know, throw that oh, shit away. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And she uh, obeys. And she already has, like, a, an infrastructure for what to do whenever she's hurt, as Azil already alluded to. She, she burns it away, uh, despite the fact that it was important to her. I know. And she tells uh, Sopico to, you know, back off or I'll, I'll burn you up as well. But... She, he still covers her up with the, the blanket. You know, he crosses that threshold. And, you know, he delivers this line, uh, which I really just, I really love. It's about uh, growing up. Uh, Serpico says that, you know, before a child can grasp for happiness, they must bury that part of themselves, adapting to reality. But before long, their true self vanishes as the snow piles up in the labyrinth. Uh, so it's in the process of adapting to life and growing up. You know, you have to bury who you were so you can grow up. Uh, what this means for him, of course, it's more direct for Serpico. He buried who he was and whatever his desires were in, in the service of others, you know, both his mother and uh, Farnese. I want to see what you guys thought of that little scene there. It, it's first, it's a comment on uh, Farnese's situation. And the line before that one uh, matters, is, you know, the fact she's afraid. Afraid of being left alone, afraid of uh, being hurt. So, and that's why she hurts people around her and burns these things, and uh, you know, even tells Serpico that she'll burn him up, uh, which doesn't mean, you know. Uh, so, I think it's a reflection on that, on the fact she she's afraid, and and that's why she tries to become the one who is feared. Uh, instead of the one who fears. And uh, yeah, obviously it can also be applied to Serpico himself and, uh, you know, the way he has to uh, suppress his own desires and even his own identity to become uh, what is convenient for him to survive. Yeah, and all, all that is paired with this, the, the blanket of snow, you know, coming down, you know, burying who he was, which is what was an actual fear of happening whenever he was lying, you know, dying in the snow was this, he was fearful of the snow, just covering him up and he would just fade away and as if he never existed. And yeah, he has this encounter with Federico himself. He's just carrying a bucket and, you know, we don't see Federico's face except for in this locket that Serpico has that his mother had given him, which shows his father and he recognizes. He has point, you know. good eyes. <laughs> the guy spot, I mean, for a guy who's like sort of <laughs> above it all, 
<laughs> you know, mm-hmm. you would think that he just immediately spots that locket. <laughs> it's his hobby. Probably because since he's the one who gave it to the woman, right. it actually got yeah. some value. And he's like, yeah, why did you get this thing? Did yeah, you just you know, it? It probably just started out with him seeing that, like, hey, that thing is actually – he probably didn't specifically recognize it. Well, he says so. Oh, hey, that, that, that's real gold. Let me see that. <laughs> where, do you do, where do you snatch that up? Feel this from me, you little – You little thief. <laughs> <laughs> well – that's what Serpico thinks, but you know, look at the speech bubble. Oh, I thought so. Is this like dripping with? Like, <laughs> yeah. Oh God! Oh. It's even the speech bubble is even all grossly shaped, like, <laughs> like, oh. like almost oozing on the bottom. I thought you might be that kid. Jeez, oh, <laughs> another likely lad. I like this dispassionate moment for him. You know, Mira has framed it in the silhouette. You know, thus I came to meet my father. There was nothing especially moving about it for me. And it's like, oh, so he's the one. He's not even like really there in this scene. He's just kind of like accepting that events are happening to him. So, yeah, Federico engages with Serpico and basically says he'll grant him, you know, ability if he keeps the secret between them. And he explains that there are three heirs to the three male heirs to the Vendimian family and each of them planned to vying to succeed him. And adding a fourth faster child would merely make the whole process even more complicated. So it's really best if you didn't exist, basically. But I'll give you a piece of paper that says your everything's cool. Feels like he's done this before. He's got it down to oh, really. He knows maybe. the pitch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And Serpico's only request is that, would, would you visit my mother? Be willing to visit my mother? Because Serpico knows how much that means to his mother, that mm. she gets recognition uh, for that past love of hers. Uh, and he gets a dismissal in time, he says. Yeah, sure, buddy. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. So uh, he tells the mo- the news to his mom, and she's thrilled that he actually is on the path to becoming noble. So that's that's great for her to, to know that that's happening. I mean, in, a, in a way, this is sort of far beyond expectations of what would realistically oh, ever sure. happen for them. Yeah. Right. I mean, he'd be dead in the snow in, in, in all reality, <laughs> yeah. you know, from the very beginning of the story. <laughs> Um, so yeah, then we have this scene between Serpico and uh, Vendimian where they're just, uh, I'm really, he's basically saying, I really appreciate doing what you are for doing what you're doing for my daughter because, yeah, nobody else gets her and you seem to get her. I have no idea what could possibly be wrong with her, but I'm at a loss. Yeah. Yeah. He says he sees her like once a year at most, which is <laughs> like, I mean, it's as, as he didn't have her killed, but it's barely above that, you know? Yeah. And the episode ends with him, image of Serpico, you know, putting a, the robe on her or the coat. sweater. Coat, thank you, on her. So we're on to part two. Uh, some years have passed uh, and um, they have grown up a little bit. Farnese has, I think they're teenagers, obviously, probably 14, 14 15 or so. And they're at this, you know, ballroom scene. I actually wonder which ballroom they're in. I might wonder if it doesn't really matter. But obviously, um, she's being courted by the, a number of, you know, suitors because not only is she, you know, a member of the Vandemian family, which everybody wants a piece of, you know, she's also become quite beautiful. So she's drawn the eye. She's no longer just some eccentric girl that lives alone in a mansion. Now she's being, you know. But now she's a uh, real force. <laughs> now she's on, on tour, yeah. as it were. Yeah. Uh, but there's the same dynamic between the two of them, as we very quickly learned. Uh, it's merely, you know, driven differently by hormones a little bit, perhaps. Um, so Serpico uh, has to stand in to be uh, to represent Sir, uh, Farnese in a duel because she perceives that uh, Serpico had been offended, you know, by commenting on his noble or his common birth. So 
they have to have this little duel scene and Serpico, you know, arranges matters so that it looks like it ended in a draw, but obviously it wasn't really a draw. What I think is neat about this is that this, you know, this loser noble guy actually recognizes that Serpico is more skilled than he looked. Uh, and then we have this scene where... Oh! <laughs> oh. <laughs> I like her her face and she's so obviously displeased. Yeah. Yep. She wanted there to be blood. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's like, oh, this is so lame. Yeah. <laughs> so then she punishes him for not living up to his potential. So she recognizes that he's better than this. And she knew that she could have beat that guy really easily, but he chooses not to. And we learn on the next page that Serpico did that so that it would make the whole thing easier for everybody. It's the path of least resistance. And he arranged it to be that way. But uh, before that, though, you know, Serpico comments on the fact that Farnese's attitude towards him seems to have changed. You know, she bites his arm like this and draws blood with a smile on her face. And he wonders, you know, when did these feelings between them start changing? I like that, you know, she starts by, how to say it? Uh, chastising him for getting wounded, getting so many wounds. And then she ends up biting him herself. It's like, well, if you're going to bleed, I'll make you bleed myself. You know, it's a, uh, I think it goes to show again that mix of she obviously cares for him very much, but at the same time, she's got <laughs> these neurotic tendencies that, you know, she, she, she can't repress. Her caring for you at this point, not necessarily a good thing. As we see in, like, Serpico's expression yeah. at the very top is probably my favorite. <laughs> sweating and like, oh, not at all. You give me too much credit. <laughs> yeah. It's also, you know, this scene draws some comparisons or thoughts about, you know, volume 17 when Farnese has guts, you know, in a similar situation. It's how she treats all the guys she likes. Yeah, just takes her shirts <laughs> off and whips them. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> Look out, Roderick. Oh, boy. <laughs> She's into BDSM. Yep. We have this scene with him uh, training out in the yard uh, of the mansion, and you know these leaves are falling, and he spears them all on a sword without really much of a thought. And um, he explains, kind of thinking to himself about, you know, he learned early on that you know retribution only brings retribution. Uh, so the best way to serve Farnese is without sowing any discord among anybody. So the path of least resistance is the one that he takes here. Uh, it also kind of a kind of a just a really glib commentary on you know guts life you know like what's the purpose of revenge if it just brings more revenge? I don't know what to make of this little section here where he sees you know two poor people and he gives them a coin. I guess it's a commentary on where he came from and now he's well they come around a lot different now later. Well, I also think unlike a lot of these nobles, the coin is also meaningless to him. Like you know he knows it means so much to them, but he'll just give it away. I mean he has it, mm-hmm. but he doesn't really he doesn't need it. I think it also shows that he remembers where he comes from. And yeah. uh, he knows his uh, children are starving. So he knows that coin will buy them food maybe, you know, like for several days. So it's just, yeah, I think that shows he's still, he's a good guy, basically. Yeah, he's got a heart. So he, he says that, you know, his mom's condition has gotten worse. And so he sent her to a sanitarium. I guess that's all you could do back in there. They didn't really have old folks' homes, you know, back then. So. Well, so that was the same thing, you know. I mean, a sanitarium is a place for crazy old people. Uh, and, you know, like, yeah. if you're not rich, you just leave them to die in the streets. <laughs> so <laughs> That's true. Yeah. He's part of the nobility now, so you can at least do that for her, I guess. Uh, great. <laughs> I hope he isn't paying too much of this place, though. It doesn't look really great. 
She's still at this point. Her, her delusions are such that she sees him as Federico, or the, the man in her past, and she greets him as you know, my dear husband. I've been waiting for you. So, but at the same time, you know, he's pleased that at least she can embrace this dream instead of having to deal with the, the discord between the dream and what her real life really was. You know, living in a hovel. So, at least in that in that way, she's at least happier that she's completely deluded now. We transition back to the Vendimian household where Federico says that he's in, he's arranged for an engagement to her and some other noble we never really learn. So she has a fiancé now, and basically it's Vendimian moving the pieces on the chessboard in his favor, that he's removing an obstacle in terms of Farnese being kind of a drain on the family and also just kind of pushing her off to the side. Somebody else's problem now, and it also benefits the family. So isn't this a win-win? Do you understand? <laughs> yes, father. Marrying for like an alliance with another noble is who it used to be back in the day. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it's nothing special, really, you know. But she's like ful- fulfilling her duties to the family. But it's it's not as if he does this with any care, you know. There's a single panel of him, and it's very dispassionately just saying, "I'm doing this for your sake." I've heard every time you go to a ball, there's a duel. So obviously, your trouble. I'm just going to slide you over here. You're married now. Is that cool? Sign here. Thanks. <laughs> We have this scene where uh, Farnese takes her, her outfit off and says she wants to leave this place. I, I thought she was going to burn her clothes here. Um, it's not necessarily what happens, I guess. Why does she disrobe here? Hard to say. I think she might have been yeah, seeking to burning her clothes. Maybe even, you know, I wouldn't say burning well, she her. She burns her clothes and everything else, I guess. Yeah. I, I'm not sure she would have burned herself, but I think, yeah, she was she was pretty desperate. I think she's attempting to seduce Serpico as a way of getting out of this whole scenario. Well, it definitely goes there. I mean, whether that was the intention to begin with or uh, if it just sort of pivots when he follows. It's hard to say why she went there. I think she was uh, very distressed, obviously, and she comments on it by saying that she can't leave the house. Again, I mean, it goes back to the fact she's very afraid. She's afraid of the outside. She's afraid of the world she does not know. Uh, uh, I was just going to say, I don't think she intended to seduce him in the beginning. Really? Here. No. Yeah. yeah. I think it's. I think it's genuine. I think because if she was, if it was, if she did this with intention, then this whole thing is kind of a put on just to get away. But I mean, I actually think she genuinely wants to run away with him. I. I think so. I. I think when she went there, she was. Not really thinking, and she might have been even thinking about, you know, burning herself or something like that, but... Yeah, I think this is like an extension of, you know, when she, like we talked earlier, sort of the losing your mind earlier and being in the storm. I think this is, you know, you can see her face when she's saying, yes, father. And then in the next scene, she's in the forest, you know, in a fire, throwing her clothes off. You know, it's like, where it's like, yes, father. And it's like, inside, this is what's really going on. It's not going well. It's really breaking her up. And so when Serpico appears, she throws herself into his arms and she, yeah, she basically offers him to run away with her and, you know, become a lover because she, like, she obviously loves him, I think, at this point. But he knows he can't. And so that rejection uh, sends her into a frenzy, and that's why she goes and burns the house. I mean, in a way, because she had to leave the house, yeah, burning it makes sense. You know, she's always burned everything she had to leave behind or that her father forced her to abandon. So it's, you know, I think the only other option for her at this point was to burn herself alive. 
I also wonder if she's disrobing there as to kind of like cast off her, her womanhood, because that's ultimately what changed here is that she became of age enough that she could be bartered off by her dad. Yeah. Whereas when she was a child, she was safe behind that. And so this this newfound womanhood has become like a weakness for her or a vulnerability that's forcing her to change her life as she's trying to get rid of it. I think it's also destroying her childhood or her innocence. There's a lot of symbolism you can her t- as- ascribe. Her family, you know, and the... You know, these are obviously really fancy clothes of, you know, someone yeah. in her position. And she's sort of casting that off, too, to be, you know, in the raw and then suggesting that, you know, she run off with Serpico. Yeah. And I think, you know, it might also be, I'd say, uh, a symbol of what Vendimu is doing, which is selling her virginity, selling her, yeah, her body. You know, yeah, her body, pretty much. So disrobing in front of the fire. She's being, like, basically pawned off like a sexual object in a way. And so she's acting that out too. Yeah, Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. She's being sold off. So yeah. And so eventually because Serpico rejects her and, and so, you know why she does it kind of reluctantly too. (laughs) (laughs) I really like the framing of this shot where they're bent together, as they say, and being framed by the tree as if they're standing together holding hands like that, and she's facing him, he's facing her. I just really love the imagery of that, particularly with the silhouette of the tree behind them. I just think it's beautiful. Yeah. Right. And Serpico's face is very shown in very limited ways in this whole page, too. It's hard to see exactly how he feels. Well, I mean, I think the best one is that top corner shot. Yeah. The yeah same. It's clear that he is having an emotional reaction. It's like he's finally, or finally digging into how he feels about things, but it's cut short because he makes like a, a tactical decision here about the whole thing. Mm. And he comments on how fathers, mothers, and my siblings, why am I unable to escape all the things that bind us? Uh, so yeah, Azil, commenting on what you had said before, Serpico is someone who is cemented to the road of so many different allegiances. He has an allegiance to his father to keep the secret that they are actually siblings. He has allegiance to Farnese because, you know, he's serving her and protecting her from the world. And, of course, he used to have an allegiance to his mom, and we'll deal with that in a second. But who is he? He is not free like the wind, like a leaf. <laughs> as he points out later. Yeah, yeah, as he comes to identify with that. Yeah, so anyway. The irony. But, well, it's also – he also doesn't have the freedom because of this to take her up on, you know, this offer. Mm-hmm. You know, he yeah. can't. He cannot become her lover, even if he does love her and, in part, love her in that way, like romantically, because mm-hmm. he knows what she doesn't. And as you pointed out, he also can't tell her either. Yeah, he's trapped. Yeah, he also bears the burden of knowing that they are related, why she does not. And actually, it's funny because he still has not told her. And uh, you know, I also think, among many other things, that uh, he will have to tell her why they're in a film. Because, that is pretty you know, weird at this point. At what point would he have done it, I guess, is the thing. Yeah, yeah. I, I agree. A, I agree. It's weird. I'm just saying, like, when would it I happen? I mean, it's just weird because she's come so far, and this almost is like, is this what is this sort of the thing that's holding him back? Like, once he shares this, it just completely changes their dynamic, you yeah. know, and not in this way where he can just sort of hide up against the wall all the time. The, in a weird way, it makes them equals. Right. That, that would really – I think she would be absolutely shocked. Yeah, and he, he becomes like her older brother at that point. <laughs> you know, it's sort of – yeah, it just completely changes everything. <laughs> it's funny because I, I feel like it's a, a card Mira has got up his sleeve and 
when he plays it, uh, it's going to have big repercussions because, yeah, it will... Um, I think it has the potential to completely change their relationship. It'll uh, tell her as he's bleeding out, you know. <laughs> By the way... <laughs> no, I think... But, but I think, yeah, it's going to... Because he's already been acting up basically like uh, her protective older brother. But she treats him still pretty dismissively. Yeah. Uh, and he's still acting subserviently. He's only acting as a, his older brother when she's in danger. And he's like, okay, I'll just throw away the pretense and uh, get serious now. It, it also makes him less pathetic because it's not like he's just someone who's, you know, has nothing better to do. And he just still follows her around and, you know, throws himself into danger whenever she's in it. It's also that, like, yeah, he. what better thing does he have to do than to protect, you know, his younger sister, his family, the only family he has? Yeah. So that would be, you know, it's like people see him a certain way because, yeah, he's still just this guy, even though, like, Farnese, like you said, she's still very dismissive towards him. Roderick is in the picture. She has obvious feelings for Guts, and he's just sort of this guy who would appear to be, like, you know, following her around in the friend zone. <laughs> you know, sort of sadly, you know, that she doesn't have much use for and it's not really the case. Yeah. Uh, one thing uh, I think is important to point out is uh, when she burns the mansion, I, I think she probably expected to die there. You know, she was not looking to to survive. And uh, and Serpico is the one that, who actually saves her life. And uh, yeah, I, I think, you know, it really shows because people, you know, might underestimate uh, the trauma Farnese had growing up. And so they might think her transition from who she was uh, in the Holy See when we first met meet her and who she becomes now, uh, like it's a very different person. And I, I think it's important to understand that her life has been pretty traumatic and she, yeah, I mean, at 16, she basically, like, tried to kill herself pretty seriously because her father, after ignoring her all his life, was just selling her off so that he would benefit his family with another alliance. And, you know, I mean, it's uh, – Mira does not bring attention to it, but it's a pretty – strong uh, commentary on the place of women in society uh, in that world. You know, it's not just because people will say, oh, you know, it's berserk. Women, you know, will get raped by soldiers all the time, that kind of stuff. But even in uh, nobility, uh, the role of a woman is terrible. And that even goes for like Charlotte, you know, uh, uh, the Queen of Midland, but or Princess of Midland at the time, but also for someone like Farnese. To me, the most interesting finish on that scene is that final shot of them embracing. Is just because first, you know, Serpico tackles her out of the way, but then that last shot with her eyes closed. Mm-hmm. And yeah. That's what I was going to mention. Yeah, where it's, like an yeah, embrace. The, those those yeah. two panels, it's like the middle one, She's she realizes, oh, I won't die here. And the third panel is like her realizing she has to live with this now. You know, her, she will survive this. Well, and I also, I mean, that final panel to me is sort of like she's getting what she wanted in the first place, which was sort of embracing with him. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like she's almost she's gotten mm. it back and it's like this is what she needs and you know, that's and, and, that's the final takeaway on that. And and what she wanted. Mm. I mean when she tells him she wants to run away with him, she she basically asking him to save her. You know, he that that's also uh, the tragedy of that scene is that she she's asking him to, to save her from that fate. 
and and of course I think I think it's I think it's the opposite. I think she wanted to die, but Serpico is so capable, he diverted her plan. No, I mean uh, before that, I mean uh, in the like when they're in front of the tree and she's asking him to run away with her. Okay. So at yeah. that point, she's asking him to yeah to save her from the from what's going on, you know, uh, being married to uh, some some guy, and and he refuses because they are siblings, but she does not understand. He she just thinks that well he does not desire her, uh, and doesn't want to be a lover, um, and and so yeah, and so when he actually saves her from that falling chandelier, uh, she in a way he he does fulfill what she wanted, which is to be saved by him. Obviously, uh, and to embrace not, her. Because, yeah. you know, he pushed her away before and now he's, you know, even though he's tackling her out of the way yeah. of a yeah. chandelier, <laughs> I feel like the first shot with her eyes open, that's the tackling yeah. of the chandelier. And then she's sort of, you know, it's like, ah, yeah. know, that's the comfort, the payoff. She, she, she grabs onto him and, you know, because yeah. he, he rejects her in front of the tree. He, he pushes her back. He's like, no, we can't, we can't do this. So she runs off and sets fire to the mansion. And then he comes again. And saves her from death. And, and I think that's why she embraces him. This interesting thing where when she tries to be repulsive towards him, you know, and threaten him and, you know, look as bad as possible, he always, you know, came and like put the coat or the blanket on her shoulders anyway. He was never repulsed. And then when she finally is vulnerable and sort of gives herself to him in a, you know, this sort of literally, you know, naked way, he, that's when he rejects her. And so that yeah. had to really be, uh, you know, really throw her as well. Yeah. Right. Because maybe that's when that, he's seemingly repulsed. Maybe at that point, if, you know, things had gone differently, she might act- actually, you know, uh, show her true self a little bit. Maybe start yeah. healing. Yeah, that would have been a different outcome for sure. Um, yeah. Different story at that point. Uh, so the result of this, her burning down the mansion, the... the Dad's mad. Yeah. <laughs> She partied with dad, was gone, and it's not cool. Uh, the engagement is canceled. Uh, the wedding is called off, and Farnese was sent to a monastery to live. So that was her dad's solution Devil uh, child. to the whole problem. Yeah, off to military school, effectively. Um, ever since that day, there was no longer anything between Lady Farnese but a mistress and servant relationship. So it's like this their relationship flared up for a moment, and it could have gone one way, but it went another way, and it's never been engaged ever since mm. that moment. Um, so then we have a single panel where it says the days were spent in tranquil dialogue with God, which is almost like dripping with sarcasm, <laughs> you know, cause neither of them are particularly really religious. I mean, or um, tranquil, I mean, in her case, but maybe, maybe this agrees with her. Yeah. Um, so yeah, they have this shot of her with the, uh, the Holy Iron Chain Knights emblem behind her and she's looking very heroically in her, her new outfit. Yeah. She looks pretty rad. They kind of narrate, you know, the significance of having a female lead them, but also the, the significance of having a female Vendimian lead it is also uh, important. And we get introduced to Azan. First appearance chronologically of Azan here. Um, Azan will actually be the dad in this group here, is what they say. You know, I think like like we get a little appearance. Well, there. he's a guy says, doing mm. the actual work while she's a rich <laughs> yeah, pair. He's commander. just lounging around, you know. I like her reaction when she looks at him. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, <laughs> he'll do. Gonna be, he's going to be a, a real boner, boner for our plan. 
so this is what I was referring to earlier, where there's this whole like really dense uh, circumstance where there was this attack on uh, on the different um, temples and mansions of the nobility. Uh, they're being set fire to, and so they you know, they send out the holy iron chain knights, uh, send out the rich kids. They'll they'll put it down. Uh, they were going to capture a bunch of heretics and suppress the heretics with a series of uh, burnings. Farnese, as if possessed, you know, leads the charge on making sure this happens, and so she's very ruthless in, in how she she does that. Her diligently performs her duties. Uh, Serpico notices that whenever she looks, has that look in her eyes, it's the same as when she looked at that burning bird in the, in the cage. <laughs> it's a great shot, yeah. too. It's just frightening. And also, I mean, it also speaks to, like, sort of those people, you know, the way she's excelling in her role here. When you take someone who's bossy and obnoxious and drives everyone crazy, when you actually give them authority, sometimes it fits, <laughs> you know, and it actually <laughs> works. It's exactly what we wanted. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, they always wanted to do this. <laughs> so there you go. <laughs> mm-hmm. And he says flames have become so central to her childhood. Perhaps this has actually found a place that she belongs in dealing out this kind of torturous existence. Yeah, these uh, several panels introduce this heretical sect of, they call them a heretical sect. They weren't devil worshippers, is what it says, uh, all the, but they stood against the wealth of the world being monopolized by the so church. They're basically the Protestants. Yeah. Uh, all are equal in the eyes of God, uh, but that was denounced as heresy by the Holy See. Because that just does not work for their worldview. That's just not going to fit in. That's not going to slot in seamlessly fly. with the way, with the, the ruling class of not only the way the church works, but also how the nobility really works. Um, what I think is interesting about that is that, you know, wealth is a factor here. And the Vandemian have, you know, carved out their mark on the world through wealth. So it's it's very appropriate, I think, that this particular kind of rebellion is the one that flares up here in the midst of Farnese. Mm. Yeah, and it also shows that, I mean, it's a small commentary, but on the fact that the organized religion is also uh, often, and that is lost. Uh, historically uh, a way to for rich people to get richer you know it's like a kind of parallel nobility where priests and the like were very well off right and it's a nice wrinkle in the overall because we don't get a lot of social commentary in berserk about you know politics or the state of the world or what people were doing to change their world Uh, we don't get a lot of that other than via war which is really nation to nation warfare which isn't really the same thing as like a citizen's uprising you know this is kind of a unique Mm. thing uh in in the series i think it's interesting yeah but it only lasts about three panels the result of this uprising was that anyone associated with this group you know even their families you know were um wiped out uh, even they, even though everyone there was third class citizens who didn't you couldn't even get food on their plates, they were similarly wiped out. And Serpico thinks of those two children who he you know tossed a coin to whenever he was uh, in the Vendemian mansion, who were also probably affected. They were who I once was. He reflects, but he continues on you know soldiering on as a member of the Holy Iron Chain Knights until he sees his his mother is also at the stake in this particular instance. Uh, and they say that this these guys were holed out in, the, in a sanitarium. So his mom was just kind of incorporated into their scheme. Really, she wasn't involved. She just happened to be at the same place. But it doesn't matter. Anyone associated with them gets burned. You know, that's the deal here. Um, when Serpico sees her, he, he says out loud, mother. And which causes a stir because people hear him say that. And suddenly, does he need to go up there too? If he's related, that's the whole, that's the the agreement here is anyone associated with a heretical sect gets burned. So it creates this dilemma where 
So uh, Farnese has to kind of like unstick Serpico from this sticky situation. So she stands up for him, uh, but then he says it again. Uh, in, the, in the midst of this, uh, Serpico's mom is, you know, calling out to him, asking because uh, she's mistaking him for Federico himself. Uh, so to solve this scenario, Farnese hands him the torch. I think you you should, you know, mention that Serpico's very, like throughout the whole thing, he's very absorbed. You know, he's uh, he's not quite there, thinking about his life or yeah. what his mother has been, you know, going through, what he's done, if he's done things wrong he's, he's in very sort of denial even you know like you know is this some sort of punishment why is she here and you know the well, fact that he says it again is he's sort of lost perspective yeah someone who's very careful and calculating suddenly he's lost control of it is what it seems like but yeah what's also interesting here is that he makes a parallel between the treatment of his mother and how she ended up here yeah. and the treatment of farnese by her father and so he feels this immense guilt. He asks, is this your revenge for this guilt that he has? Mm. Farnese's solution is to basically involve him in the burning is the way that they get out of the scenario that he has created. To prove that he's not uh, related to the heretics and shouldn't be bothered. Right. And it's also for her, you know, to prove it to me that she's not your mother. She has this look in her eyes, tears in her eyes, because I think she's fearful of losing him, too. Yeah. At this, throughout this, because he could I feel like they could have used their sway differently <laughs> to, like, you know, you know, <laughs> I feel like they could have done more, especially Serpico for his mother. <laughs> he said, Bother, oh, bother, is what he said. He likes Winnie the Pooh, is what <laughs> was happening. He didn't say mother. Uh, I, I really like that uh, shot of uh, Serpico when she tells him to, to throw the torch, you know, when yeah, he turns he back. Turns his face, it's just like out of a horror yeah. comic or something, uh, yeah. And, you know, when that, so there's that shot of her with tears in her eyes because she's afraid of, of losing him. And as she, you know, gives him the torch, you, you can see her bent head. There's not a lot of detail, but you can see it. she, she knows it's, it's very painful, uh, for the both of them. She, she knows and understands that it's very, like, it's, it's going to be a traumatic moment for him as well, I think. Yeah, and you know, we actually flash back to uh, kind of remembering now in volume eighteen, we got a little bit of this about why he's so fearful of flames. You know, he walks away from the, the burning in volume eighteen. Yeah, uh, because of this, it's this incident that brought those memories to him. And I don't think he's necessarily fearful uh, so much as he just dislikes it. He's disgusted by it because of that memory. Yeah, sure. And and he, you know, it takes us back to uh, the beginning of this uh, little flashback where he turns away from the fire because, uh, yeah. Right. Brings back bad memories. Yep. Um, what did we burn to ashes? What were we delivered from? What were we enchained by? Is the way effectively this episode ends. There's one more page, but this full page is really beautiful. The swirling flames at the focal point is of the actual stake where his mother is. But then there's like a there's an interstitial level of focus where there's Farnese and Serpico, the silhouette of them, and then we get this side by side shot of them holding the torch. So it's it like together. just three levels of it. <laughs> it's really amazing. I just love yeah. the, the pairing of that shot, holding the flames together, looking like one single person. I think that's cool. Now we know uh, how Shirke would win against Serpico. Setting the blaze wheel on his ass. How'd you like that, <laughs> bitch? <laughs> no. He's got, I mean, I guess you could just use a torch. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> that way, you know, it's never actually has it. It's never really come up where it's been like a weakness in a fight where Serpico is, you know, like a fear of fire derailing him and something he should otherwise be competent. 
And yeah, I mean, he just sort of turns away from the flames. I, I don't think he's so much like uh, being traumatized by it. And like, if he sees a torch, he's be like, ah, oh, no, no. Yeah. I, I think it's more he dislikes it and what. I think it is more, it turns his stomach, you know, because when he's looking at like a fire, it makes him think about what he did. Yep. Yeah. And that being said, I also think much like Farnese uh, has been able to get over a lot of her trauma over the months and years she spent with Guts and, and, and the rest. I feel like Serpico might have also been able to get into a more healthy set of mind. I still think, like, you know, I know I'm thinking too logically about this because it's like once you're on that stake and you're, you know, it unravels the whole thing to say, no, this woman isn't uh, one of them. She's crazy. You know, we can prove it. You know, there's no other way, but it's like, yeah, well, I feel like you could have uh, stood I up mean, for her. Yeah, you know how these things went yeah. back in the day, right? This is the dramatic answer. That's why this is the case. You st- if um, you start saying, oh, there's no way she could have been, these guys will be like, okay, put this moron with your rest. Let's just get this over with. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a nice dinner waiting for me back at the mansion. See, okay, here's the other half of it, too, where I'd be a little more resentful of Farnese, not just because she kind of forces his hand here. Even though she thinks she has to, you know, this is for the best. But then there's also the case that, you know, it's also like, <laughs> I'm your I'm your mistress. <laughs> you have no other. Yeah. But it's also the fact that it's like, she pretty much gets anything she wants. She probably could have come up with some horseshit to be like, there's been a mistake. Get that woman down, <laughs> you know. But that's just not the way it goes, obviously. Yeah, that's true. And yeah, there, there is a component of, uh, I'm the only one for you, just like you're the only yeah. one for me. Very dark ending for this before they move on to yeah it is guts. Um, so yeah that's based, that is their dark past together their dark shared past it's kind of alluded to at the beginning of this uh, sequence of episodes but it ends actually looking forward as they're continuing on their journey towards guts who Serpico says you know as if trying to melt the snow with some flame so guts is the flame here that will melt away the snow that has encumbered them in the past so that will be where they're headed away from the holy city and towards guts. That's the, that's it. That's the end. That's that took all a long she wrote. Time. That, yeah. That's pretty good. Pretty good. I hope you guys like that. And uh, we will continue the reread in the future to volume 23. Um, I think it will be a little easier as we go forward with Millennium Falcon. I was a little, little concerned about how we do volume 22, given how hefty it is, but we managed it. Uh, but before that, we'll probably be back uh, in July to talk about um, – Episode 361, presuming that it comes out on July 22nd. It's going to be delayed again. <laughs> no, no. That's it. I jinxed it. Oh, no. There's a missing spike on the other side of the shoulders now. <laughs> Got to fix that. That's another Uh-oh. month. Yeah. That's the end, guys. Thanks for tuning in. And I'll be back with another episode of the Skullcast. Thanks, guys. Bye-bye. Bye. The Skullcast is a production of Skullnight.net, a Berserk fan community. If you like what you heard, please visit patreon.com slash sknet. Donations there do not go towards the podcast, but instead toward our resident translator, Poila, who ensures that our members have access to high-quality, text-based translations of Berserk. Poila has also been translating interviews with Berserk's creator, Kentaro Miura. Many of these interviews have never been translated into English, so it's very exciting to read those. That kind of work simply wouldn't have happened without support from our donors. If you'd like to chip in a buck or two, please know that it all helps. Once again, that's patreon.com sknet. If you have a question or want to comment on the podcast, visit our forum, skullnet.net forum. 
Near the top, you'll see a section devoted to the podcast. There's always an active thread in there, so go ahead, leave a post, and someone's sure to respond quickly. Thanks for listening.